0: But I'd like to invite you all to turn this morning to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. In the book of Romans, we have Paul's magnum opus. I think that just means like his really important letter. It's a big word. This is basically Paul's systematic theology. We find Paul's theology unpacked and explained in detail and at length. This theological masterpiece expounds the depths and the heights of God's righteousness in the gospel. Romans tells us that we're made righteous through faith in Christ, according to God's sovereign grace. After reasoning and explaining and illustrating and unpacking these truths, Paul builds to a triumphant and worshipful crescendo in chapter 11, verse 33. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And Paul could have just stopped right there. He could have thrown down his pen Dropped the mic and said, "Boom! That's done. I just told them exactly what is true." But Paul's not done because he he doesn't only want his readers, including us, to understand what is true. The apostle Paul, and more importantly, the Holy Spirit who inspired his writings, wants us to live in light of these truths. So, in light of God's mercy to us, as it's revealed in the gospel how should we live? Well, Paul says, I'm glad you asked. I'll give you five more chapters of practical instruction on how you should live in light of these truths. And here in Romans chapter 12, in our text this morning, Paul piles up a list of commands for believers. You know, there's different types of scripture. We have stories, we have parables, we have poetry. This is a bullet list that just lays out several key instructions for us, In the first part of chapter 12, he speaks of living a life of wholehearted devotion to God. We are to be living sacrifices. That's verses 1 and 2. Then Paul speaks of our place in the church. We are to humbly use our gifts and embrace our unique roles in the body. That's verses 3 through 8. And then in verses 9 through 21, Paul begins to speak about how we must relate to other people, both those within and outside the church. this will be our text for this morning, specifically focusing on verses 9 through 18. Let's pick it up in verse 9. Here's the bullet list Paul gives us. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Lord, as we come to your word today, we come acknowledging that your word is true. It is true in all times, for all people, in every situation. We come acknowledging that your word has absolute authority. So Lord, we ask you to speak to us. Use your word to expose the sin in our hearts, to shine light on the things that you desire to change in us. Lord, give us a teachable spirit. Help us to be not just hearers, but doers of your word. We pray for this help in the name of Jesus. Amen. So why does Paul give so much instruction as to how we are supposed to relate to other people? Maybe you're thinking that as you read through this pretty long list. You might wonder, are relationships really that important? I mean, if I'm right with God, isn't that all that matters? No, relationships do matter. Relationships are, first of all, an aspect of our nature. We're told in the book of Genesis that we were made in the image of God. And since eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this triune three-in-one God has enjoyed perfect relationships. Mutual love and delight and harmony. And this triune God has created us with a capacity for relationship with him and relationship with each other. So relationships are what we are made for. Secondly, these relationships in the church are a result of redemption. The gospel saves us and places us into, get this, the body of Christ. The family of God. The temple of the Holy Spirit. Peter says we're living stones built together. All of these metaphors assume the interconnectedness and interdependency of believers. Third, relationships are central to our mission. This is why we're talking about it this month. Relationships are the context in which discipleship happens. If relationships in the church are weak or non-existent, we are not faithful disciples. And we will fail in our mission to help other people grow in their faith. So there's many commands in this text that we've just read a few moments ago, and they don't all deal specifically with relationships. So what I want to do is highlight those that are relational in nature. And the temptation is to preach an entire sermon on each one of these, and they would all deserve that. But I just want to touch on them each briefly and identify for you this morning seven goals for relationships in the church. So you can be looking for these seven goals as we walk through the text. The first we find in verses 9 through 10, and it's love. Love. This is the first goal. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Love. We know from the teaching of Jesus that love is the summary of the law. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. How we relate to God is summarized in one word, love. And how we are to relate to others is summarized in one word, love. Love. So really, this could be the heading under which all of the rest of these goals are listed. And this love, Paul says, is first of all to be genuine. It says, let love be, in verse 9, genuine. Genuine means sincere, without pretense, not fake, not surface level. We're not motivated by what we can receive as we love others. Genuine love is not just trying to project a certain kind of image. Genuine love is not manipulative, expecting certain things in return. This same word for genuine is used by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter one twenty two. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That's that same word. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The way that we relate to one another in the church must be free from any ulterior motives. That's love that is genuine. It must be free from deceit, free from hypocrisy. Paul doesn't just tell us to act loving. He tells us to be loving. There's a difference. There's a difference. This love is not only to be genuine, but verse 10 points out that it is to be familial. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. So the love that we show in the church, this is not some sort of squishy romantic love. No, this is brotherly affection. This kind of love Is unconditional. It's unconditional. It is committed. This kind of brotherly love is rooted not in the performance of the other. I don't love you because of what you've done or what you can do for me. This love is rooted in the nature of the relationship. Because you are my brother or my sister, I love you. Period. That's what it's rooted in. This kind of love is not disposable, it is permanent because someone never stops being your brother or your sister. This love is rooted in our gospel identity. As those who have been adopted into the family of God, we are brothers and sisters in Christ and therefore are called to act like it, to love one another with brotherly affection. You might say, what does this genuine brotherly love look like? Many of you are probably thinking already of 1 Corinthians 13. It describes this kind of love for us. It says, this love is patient and kind. This love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This kind of love, Paul says, never ends. What this shows us is that the love that we are called to as believers in the church is more than simply a feeling or a disposition it's going to be demonstrated in actions that seek the good of the other. If you're looking for a practical definition of love, it's not just how you feel, but it's seeking the good of the other. And this includes meeting physical needs, yes. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. It includes especially seeking the spiritual good of those whom we love. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul writes that speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul says the, the, the evidence that love is at work in the church is that each member of the church is seeking to build up each other in love towards growth and maturity and Christ likeness. And this is done, Paul says in Ephesians, as we speak the truth. So, truth and love are not incompatible, they're joined at the hip. Speaking the truth in love means that we seek to build up. But speaking the truth in love also means that we will point out sin and error in our brothers. Therefore, such love will include things like confrontation. This kind of genuine brotherly love will include things like rebuke and correction. And exhortation and encouragement, all of it. And this can be painful at times. But we must not fall into the trap of the world's thinking. The world's thinking which says, I am only truly loved when I feel loved by you. Often when I do marriage counseling, whether premarital counseling or crisis marriage counseling, I love to share with people this quote from a pastor named John Piper. He calls this approach... Emotional blackmail. When you say, I'm only really loved when I feel loved by you. He writes, Emotional blackmail happens when a person equates his or her emotional pain with another person's failure to love. They aren't the same. A person may love well and the beloved still feel hurt and use the hurt to blackmail the lover into admitting guilt he or she does not have. Emotional blackmail says, If I feel hurt by you, you are guilty. There is no defense. The hurt person has become God. His emotion has become judge and jury. Truth does not matter. All that matters is the sovereign suffering of the aggrieved. It is above question. He continues, this emotional device is a great evil. I have seen it often in my three decades of ministry. So this was written like two decades ago. And I am eager to defend people who are being wrongly indicted by it. We are called to genuine love and brotherly love, but we must define love according to scripture. And when we open the scriptures, we learn that Christ is the measure of love, not culture and not our feelings. The ultimate model for love is Jesus. He sacrificed, he gave, he poured himself out. Why? Because he was seeking our spiritual good for the sake of the glory of his father. In John fifteen twelve, Jesus says, this is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. This means you and I must seek the spiritual good of the other for the glory of God our Father. That's the definition of love. So let me ask, do you genuinely love others in this body? Do you have brotherly affection for them? Because friends, this is a command that must be obeyed. And it is necessary if we're going to accomplish our mission of glorifying God by being and making disciples of Jesus. There's a second goal Paul gives us. We find this also in verse 10. And it is honor. Along with love comes honor. Verse 10, he says, Outdo one another in showing honor. To honor someone is to show genuine appreciation and admiration. This is not the same as flattery. It's not the same as empty praise. I think some of us are very careful to avoid that, and rightly so. But there is a place for showing honor. And Paul says it should be a contest that we seek to outdo one another. Showing honor to others is an expression of love and a demonstration of humility and gratitude for who they are and for how God has blessed you or his church through them. And we are called to, to, to show this honor. It's almost a contest, outdo one another. To show honor is the opposite of dismissing someone, of ignoring them or of taking them for granted. To show honor is very hard for the proud, but it comes very naturally for the humble. Honor should be especially evident in the way we treat those who are older in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1 says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. There's a measure of honor that's shown even in confronting the sin in brothers or sisters who are older than us. It says in verse 2, it says, To treat older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity honor widows who are truly widows. And he explains that these are the older women who have genuine needs and they are to be shown a specific type of honor. I think too many churches today cast the elderly to the side as no longer being necessary, as no longer being relevant, as no longer being, they would maybe never say this out loud, but no longer being useful. Their wisdom is seldom sought. Their stories are often unheard. Their needs are often relegated as being less significant. And the thought is often that, well, don't we need to reach the next generation? And yes, this is true. But it's a false dichotomy to think that you can reach the next generation without the help of the current and the previous generations. And it's a false dichotomy to say that we reach the next generation by ignoring the previous generation. We need to honor those who are older among us. We are also to honor those who lead in the church and faithfully serve. In Philippians 2.29, Paul writes concerning his apprentice Timothy. He says to Philippians, he says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well... Speaking of pastoral leadership, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Hebrews 13 verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. There's honor shown in the church to the authorities God has established. 1 Peter 2.17 just opens it wide up and says we are to honor everyone, everyone, old or young, whether it's the pastor of the church or the brand new believer, whether it's the unsafe visitor, we are to show honor to everyone. Disrespect, dishonor, dismissing others as not worth our time or attention or appreciation, this is not the way that we are to relate to anyone in the church. All are owed a measure of honor. Honor. This is a goal for relationships in the church. Love, honor, and then, third, generosity. Generosity. Verse 13, Paul writes contribute to the needs of the saints. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Love, in its nature, gives. And Paul exhorts us here to be generous, to be generous with our money, to be generous with our things, to be generous with our time. I think too often we give other people only what is left over after we've taken care of ourselves. But being a disciple of Jesus, responding obediently to the authority of Scripture, means that we embrace our part in the body and we see and we care for the needs of others who are around us. One of my pastor friends recently said it this way He said, I don't have a wallet. God has a wallet and I carry it. And that's really the perspective we need because it could be that God wants to provide for one of his children through your giving. It could be that the answer to someone's prayer is sitting in your bank account. It's possible that someone has a need today that could be met if you were to give of your time, of your expertise, of your effort and energy. The reason, friends, that God has supplied you with resources is so that you can be generous with them. We see this in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10. It says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Did you hear what Paul said? He said, you will be enriched in every way, not so that you can simply enjoy a more comfortable life. He says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Our generosity to others is really a response to God's generosity towards us, isn't it? When we reflect on all that we have been given... Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is a generous God, and our goal as disciples is to grow in godliness, to be like our heavenly Father. Ephesians 5.1 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. So let me ask you, would anyone ever accuse you of being generous? Would anyone look at your life And see the family resemblance. To see that you are like your heavenly father in terms of generosity. I'm afraid some of you may have never gotten to experience the joy of sacrificial giving to the needs of others. You're missing out. And so are other people. Many of you in this room have. You've demonstrated this kind of generosity. I praise God for that. And you know the sweetness and the joy of being used by God, of having open hands and seeing God meet the needs of others through your generosity. Our relationships ought to be marked by Christ-like generosity. This is our simple response of gratitude to God for all that he's given us. There's a fourth goal. It's also in verse 13. And this is hospitality. Hospitality. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hospitality. Now, this hospitality that Paul's talking about here is probably not what you think. I can just encourage you guys in the room, you don't need a subscription to Better Homes and Gardens, you don't need a Pinterest account, you can still be hospitable, okay? The Greek word for hospitality here has the sense of loving foreigners or or entertaining strangers. It means that you see those who are out of place, you see those who are in need of welcoming, and you eagerly bring them in. This is a common instruction in the New Testament, and it is to be especially practiced in the church. First Peter chapter 4, verse 9 says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Romans 15, 7 says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So, friends, this hospitality means much more than simply opening up your home. It means far more than simply providing some food or hosting an event. This hospitality happens in the church, too, on Sunday morning. It's demonstrated when someone new walks into the room or when you see someone who's sitting alone in one of these chairs. Hospitality is communicated in your conversations. It's shown in your body language, your facial expressions, your words, and your actions. And again, this hospitality is not something that's just for women to talk about in their women's Bible studies. Men, if you are single, you aren't off the hook to show hospitality. Men, if you are married, this isn't your wife's job to show hospitality. We are the leaders of our homes and of our church. And we are accountable and responsible for whether or not this command gets obeyed in the context of our homes and our churches. Men, we need to take responsibility for this. This virtue is to mark all mature Christians, which is why, coincidentally, it must be exemplified by pastors. Believe it or not, according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, someone who is not hospitable is not qualified to be a pastor in the church of God. Let me ask you some practical questions. Do you see your home as a retreat from ministry or as a resource for ministry? It's a good question to ask. Remember, just like it's God's wallet in my pocket, it's also God's house, or God's apartment, or God's duplex. And he tells us to be hospitable with his stuff. Let me ask, do you make excuses for being inhospitable? There's a lot of excuses we can come up with. I thought of a couple. You could probably help me think of more. Some of us would say, you know what, I'm very introverted. It's just my personality And so, really, hospitality is not my gift, and I'll just let the other people do that who are way better at it than I am. Let me just translate that for you so that you can hear it the way God hears it. To God, here's what that sounds like. I have a special pass, and I don't have to obey your command. That's what it means. Some of you would say, you know what, I'm too busy to show hospitality. Let me translate that for you. Here's what that means. I'm not seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Maybe you'd say, you know what, it's just too hard or too stressful to show hospitality. Here's how that translates. People aren't worth my time or my effort. Some of you might say, well, my house or my apartment is too small or too messy or too fill in the blank. Here's the translation. Unless I get glory, unless I can impress people, I'm not interested in showing hospitality. Let me ask, when was the last time you just invited a new family from the church into your home? Or maybe invited to to go to lunch with someone. Or, Or even walked up and met a stranger in this room. Whether they're a visitor, maybe they're a member, you've just never talked to them. When was the last time you walked up and expressed love and welcome and showed them hospitality? Friends, in the way that we relate to one another, there must be a measure of hospitality. This is biblical. It's a command. And it ought to be a goal in our fellowship here together. The fifth goal we find in verse 15, and this is sympathy. Look in verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. This is probably a well-known verse to many of you. We can quote it, even though maybe we don't know where it's found. But we get it. And even those who are outside the church, those who, who are not quoting Scripture, understand the value of this. There's a Swedish proverb that says something along the lines of, of sorrows shared are halved. They're, they're cut in half. And joys that are shared are doubled. That math makes sense, doesn't it? Even from just a practical, you know, common sense perspective. There's great wisdom in God's word that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This ought to be a reality in the church. The spiritual reality of our bond in Christ should be visibly and tangibly demonstrated. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says that if one member suffers... All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Galatians six two encourages us: bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Again, keep in mind that Paul is grounding all of these exhortations in the gospel. There's eleven chapters of the theological truth of Christ's righteousness granted to us through faith. So keep in mind that that we look back to the gospel for both motivation and as a model for how we are to bear with others. Remember that Christ shared in our sorrow, didn't he? He bore our shame. He entered into our suffering, left the throne in heaven and took on flesh. And he did so so that we might share in his joy, so that we might share in his glory. That is both the motive and the model for us. There's no room in the church for apathy or indifference our brothers and sisters in Christ? Is this how you approach relationships? Do you sympathize with others? Do you move towards them both in their sorrow and their rejoicing? Or do you tend to draw back and just leave people to deal with their own problems? I think a lot of times we're afraid, if we're honest. We're afraid because we feel like, you know what, I can't even deal with my own burdens and my own problems. I don't know how I'm possibly going to help them with theirs. But God's grace is experienced in deep ways. When we step out in faith and obey. When we sympathize with others in this way. Let me encourage you. You don't have to know what to say. But this must not keep us from obedience. And following these instructions. Biblical sympathy ought to be a goal. For our relationships with one another in the body. Sixth. Paul gives us this ideal of harmony and peace. We see this in verse 16. He says, live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. Let me ask, why do you think Paul has to tell us to live in harmony with one another? You know the old adage, every time you find a rule or a law, there's probably a reason why. There's probably a reason why. Paul knows that conflict, relational conflict, is inevitable. It's inevitable. It's part of the human experience because sin impacts relationships and all of us are sinners. James, the apostle, points out the root issue for our relational conflict. He says it's our warring desires, desires that are in conflict with one another. We desire control or we desire approval from other people or we desire cooperation or we desire comfort. And when someone else either gets in our way or won't deliver what it is that we want more than anything in the world, or threatens to take away something we hold most dear. That is the recipe for conflict. James 4 verse 1 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel. The word James uses here for passions in the ESV is translated in other places, lusts. These are inordinate desires, cravings, desires even for good things that have grown and metastasized to the point of idolatry. This is really disordered worship. Paul, or James rather calls it coveting. We were reminded last weekend, those of us guys who went down to the Iron Summit, of this practical definition for idolatry, that an idol is anything that you will sin in order to get. Or anything that you will sin if you don't get it. This idolatry, James says, is at the heart of our relational conflict. But just because Paul and James both point out that conflict is inevitable, it doesn't mean that we are simply to tolerate it. That's not what that means. We are instead, Paul says, to seek peace. Look in verse 18 of Romans chapter 12. He says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This peace that Paul refers to is a key theme throughout the scriptures and especially in Romans. Paul tells us earlier in this book that we have peace with God through faith in Christ And now the practical application is that we are to, therefore, pursue peace with one another. And Paul says this peace is to be sought with everyone. He says, live peaceably with, what does it say? All. All. No exceptions. This is comprehensive. We have an obligation and a duty. A God-given duty to take the initiative and go as far as we possibly can towards the offended or offending party, whichever side you find yourself on. Now, Paul is realistic. He knows that there will be some who insist on maintaining an adversarial posture. No matter how much you express love, no matter how much you communicate your desire for harmony and seek to bring that about, some people simply will not be at peace. However, God does not hold you accountable for others. We are simply to obey and leave the results in God's hands. But there must be an effort and a desire to seek peace among all of us. This will require rightly ordered worship in our own hearts. To let go of some of our idols. This will require a willingness to repent for the ways we have sinned against other people. This will require a willingness to forgive. To forgive as we've been forgiven. And it will require willingness to forbear. Because the reality is not everything that causes conflict is sin. And sometimes we have to be patient and forbear with the actions and attitudes of, or even the inactions of others. Let me just think out loud and wonder, you wonder with me, what would our families and our friendships and our small groups and our church look like if we all practiced this? If we pursued peace and sought to live in harmony with one another? If we did everything in our power to reconcile? As those who are forgiven by Christ, we are to live in harmony with one another. Paul says, relationally, this is the right way for you to relate to one another. A seventh and final goal for our relationships, in verse 16, is humility. Humility. He says, after urging us to live in harmony with one another, he says, Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. You know, pride kills relationships. It kills them. Because the essence of pride is to value self over others. To assume that they have nothing to offer me. That I am self-sufficient. To view others as competitors I must defeat. Or adversaries I must defend against. Or resources that I can use. Instead of viewing other people as someone to be honored and loved and served. Paul says we must not see ourselves as better than other people. It says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. We must consider ourselves to be on equal footing with the lowest of the low. We are not to be wise in our own sight, but are to humbly receive the counsel and insight and help of others. Classic formulation of humility is found in Philippians 2, verse 3. There Paul tells that church, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind or this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on to remind us how Christ humbled himself in order to bring us salvation, in order to reconcile us to God. Our response to this mercy and this grace is to lay aside our pride and to cultivate humility in the way we relate to other people. It will bring a sweetness and a depth and a joy to your relationships with others that perhaps you've never experienced. So these are seven goals that we ought to strive for in our relationship with others in the church. Love, honor, generosity, hospitality, sympathy, harmony, and humility. These are things we ought to pray for. And seek to practice. And ask God to give us the grace to grow in these things. That his spirit would empower us to be faithful to obey these commands. Because, friends, this is essential to our mission. If we would glorify God, we must obey him. If we would be faithful disciples, we need to execute the marching orders that our master has given us. And if we're going to make disciples, then we need to have strong and healthy relationships. Because that's the context in which discipleship happens. So if we'll pursue these, I'm convinced God will bless that and it will allow us to take steps forward in being obedient to the mission he's given us. Before we end, I want to share a couple clarifications. And this is also by way of application, but a couple clarifications that I think are very, very important because there's a risk and a danger in talking about relationships the way we have today. There's a risk and a danger in setting up this ideal of what it could be and even what it should be. And then you look at the reality of what relationships often are. The first clarification is this. We have to remember that relationships are not your Savior. Christ is. Relationships are not your Savior. Christ is. What I don't want to do this morning is create or feed or reinforce the idolatry that some of us wrestle with of of needing and depending on and wanting relationships so much That we sin in order to get them or sin when we don't get them the way that we want them. Some of you perhaps have looked to people to provide what only Christ can offer. No person can ever fulfill those longings. While relationships are good and they're part of God's plan, ultimately we have to believe this morning that Christ is enough. The one relationship you need is a relationship with God the Father through his son Jesus Christ. Christ is enough. People will fail you. People will disappoint you. People will sin against you. But Christ will not. He is perfect. He is faithful. He is true. What we must not ever do is look to people to meet our deepest spiritual needs. I'm concerned that perhaps some of you might have listened to this sermon today, and as you're hearing these verses, you've said, yes, amen, I love this. That is exactly how I want people to love me. That is exactly how I want people to honor me. That is exactly how I want people to be generous to me and show hospitality to me and show sympathy to me. That's a lot of me, isn't it? If that's what you heard this morning from the text of Scripture, then you weren't listening correctly. You weren't hearing it rightly. This text is not meant to give you a club to beat other people into submission and tell them exactly how you would like to be handled. This is not meant to fuel your idolatrous desire to be worshipped by other people, to have them make much of you instead of making much of Christ. This text is meant to shine the light on our own hearts to expose our own sin, to to reveal our own failures. So please don't twist this around today and miss the benefits of what God may be wanting to teach you. We need to consider the speck in our eye this morning, or the log rather in our eye, before we go around trying to find the speck in other people's eyes. If you're concerned to guard against this idolatry, maybe you've experienced this looking for satisfaction in a friendship or in a parental relationship or through your children, through a romantic relationship, whatever it may be, how do we guard against this? How do we guard against either expecting too much of people or maybe slipping into bitterness and resentment and self-pity when we aren't loved the way that we think we should be? Think very simply. I can just offer you two practical points. Cultivate, first of all, gratitude. And second of all, contentment. Gratitude for what you do have. Look around at the imperfect but real relationships God has given you. And do not focus so much on the one thing you don't have that you neglect all the things that you do. The things that God has graciously provided. Cultivate gratitude. And then secondly, cultivate contentment. We have to believe by faith that God is wise. He's wiser than me. And he knows what I need. And he has given me enough. And we ought to be content with what God has given. Imperfect and broken relationships and all. I think we need to guard against idolatry today. Remember that relationships are not your savior. Christ is. Second clarification. We need to remember today that relationships with one another are not actually the goal. They are not the goal. They are a means to an end. I think it's very easy for for a lot of us to get this wrong. There's a lot of churches today that really emphasize community. It's a great buzzword, and I love what it means. But it's very easy to become focused on community for the sake of community. It becomes the end. It becomes the sole purpose for which the church exists is to provide community. But friends, the purpose of relationships, they they are not an end goal in and of themselves. They're a means to an end. The end and the purpose for our relationships is God's glory. We engage in relationships to please Him and glorify Him. So our community is a means to that end. Relationships are for the purpose of discipleship. We build these strong, deep relationships so we can help each other grow in our faith. Battle against sin. Increase in spiritual maturity. Discipleship is the goal. Our testimony to the world is the goal. People should look from the outside and look into the church and say, that's what racial reconciliation looks like. Now I understand. That's what harmony between people who had beef in the past can be solved. That's what it looks like for the rich and the poor, the highly educated and those who aren't, and people from all these different backgrounds to feel like family. We are to have a testimony to the watching world in our unity and in our love. The purpose for these relationships is for sanctification, to make us holy. So keep in mind, those are the goals. Relationships are actually not the goal in the church. But they are a necessary means to those ends. So we need to understand that. Community for community's sake is man-centered. It's man-centered and not Christ-centered. And because of that, it is empty and it will crumble. You take Christ out of the center and it may go well for a while, but it will eventually crash and burn. If you load up relationships and community with all these expectations, they're not meant to deliver. It'll crumble. There's a reason. I used to drive a truck as for compensation. There's a reason why some of those trucks have weight limits for their axles. They're only meant to carry so much. Relationships are only meant to carry so much. Keep in mind they're a means to an end. They're not the end-all, be-all. They're not the goal. And then a third clarification, just by way of some practical observations I wanna remind you to keep this in mind that relationships come in all different shapes and sizes. And they're all good and all necessary. I think sometimes we have in our minds that we need this one person who can provide this certain type of relationship. And we think that that is the one thing that's missing. If I can have that, all my problems will be solved, and then I'll be happy, then I'll be at peace. So we look for that one special friend. I need a best friend somebody that can share all my secrets with. Or we think, I need that one mentor. I need that godly woman who's exactly 12 to 20 years older than me, no more, no less, who will spend with me six hours per week and help me do my laundry and who will mentor me in the faith and she will meet all of my emotional and spiritual needs. And then, young woman, you come to the church and you start resenting some of the gray hair in the room because none of them have been your Messiah. Or maybe you think, you know, the pastor can be that one. If I have just a good relationship with him, that would fix everything. But friends, keep in mind that relationships come in all different shapes and sizes. And often, God uses a patchwork quilt of relationships to work in our lives. Sometimes he'll use a team of four different women to mentor and help a young woman. Sometimes he'll use a group of four to five different friends who all relate to a man in different ways and encourage him in his faith. You know, there's the one guy he hangs out with. There's the other guy he studies the Bible with. There's the other guy he gets counsel from. It's kind of a community effort. There are relationships that are at the level of friendship. We should be thankful for that and cultivate that. There are other relationships that take on the form of partnership. We come along side by side with people in the church and we serve together. And that's the dynamic. There's other relationships that are are a mentorship relationship. And maybe you're the one being mentored or the one providing the mentorship. And then there's very simply the kind of relationship we have with each other as members in the body. Each of those relationships has different levels of interaction, different ways that we engage with each other, but they're all good and necessary. Don't think that there's this one end-all, be-all, one-size-fits-all relationship that can somehow provide what, what God has designed the church to provide. In various different ways. So keep that in mind. Relationships, as we've talked broadly today, they come in many different shapes and sizes and we should value and seek to cultivate and engage in all of those kinds of relationships. So as those who have received such mercy from God, if we can go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 11. We've received his love, his generosity. We've been granted peace with him through Christ. It is vital that we rightly engage with others. This is the clear teaching of Romans chapter 12 in these verses we've looked at today. If we neglect all of these commands, if we dismiss them, it honestly brings into question whether or not we truly know God. If you rightly know God, this is what it'll look like. Not perfectly, but you'll pursue these things. If you don't know God, you won't have a chance, not a chance, to actually live like this. So don't think you can do this in your strength. This is the outworking of God's grace. This is the outworking of God's grace. But if you have God's grace, it is the necessary fruit that must be displayed. So as a church, my prayer is that we would seek to obey these commands by the power of the Spirit in response to God's grace and for the glory of His name and for the good of His people. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Even though it hurts and it's convicting sometimes, to hear these things, even though they seem difficult for us. We thank you that you've revealed to us today exactly what your will is. This is not any man's ideas. This is not just some marketer's description for what the church should look like. This is the very inspired, holy, inerrant word of God. Lord, let us be doers and not just hearers today. pray that you would fill our hearts with such joy and gratitude At your mercy towards us, the way you have loved us, that we would eagerly seek to relate to other people in the same way. Lord, form Christ in us. Conform us to his image. Help us to be imitators of you, our Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.